Welcome to the History Voyager Podcast. My name is Ben Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. Okay, I thought I would talk today about something that I've been thinking about for several years. At this point, I've studied American political culture for about I'd say the better part of 20 years. I think that's a fair statement. There's always been something about American political culture that has been bugging me ever since I have been studying it seriously. And I thought I would talk about that because it's become fashionable to basically to realize that the American public is not who certain people i.e. the New York Times and Washington Post and all like that. It's not who people think it is. And, you know, people have different opinions on that. Basically, depending on what political belief they choose to um, follow or whatever. And I think that's even fascinating because... um, you know, what are politics, really, but an argument by another means? I think the better, deeper question that we'd better ask ourselves eventually is, why do we have these political fights? The Founding Fathers, I, I'm sure this is fair to say, the Founding Fathers never really intended for us to have the fights that we have. But then again, you know, you could argue that they set up the Republic with, you know, a, a ticking time bomb, and I think they might have even known that. Of course, the ticking time bomb I'm talking about is uh, slavery. You know, that was, it divided the culture and indeed the economy. If you pull back from American history and culture and you observe it, say, the way a space alien would, okay. I mean, you really, really pull pull way back, and you look and you and you look at it. Essentially, from the time we were a series of colonies to the present day, the thing that you would see, the thing that would would strike you, is that labor has bedeviled this continent. The issue of labor and what labor is and whether or not you should even pay for it has bedeviled this continent uh, for the entire time that the ancestors of Europeans and Africans have been living on this continent. This is a point of contention, but essentially historians tend to think that Lowell, Massachusetts was the first place of the Industrial Revolution in America. Unlike later New England towns, Lowell, Massachusetts did not exist as a place prior to its formation as a factory town. It was basically developed by a man whose name was Lowell for the purpose of basically creating um, shoes and dresses and the like. And it used the young ladies of the farms in the area to do this. 
Now here's where we get into an interesting little sidebar. He, these young ladies, now again, historians can differ on this, but these young ladies, it is believed, were some of the first paid employees on North American soil who were white. Now that's an interesting distinction, and it really, I think, ignores you know, labor done on farms. So here again, we get into this discussion of what labor is, who should be doing it, and whether or not anybody should get paid to do this labor. All right. Now, you might ask yourself, hey, Ben, I signed up for a, a history of, you know, COVID-19 and, and the Spanish flu. Why are you talking about labor in North America? Well, here's why. Because I've been studying American political culture for the better part of 20 years. And I think a whole lot of things in this country basically have come to revolve around the question of labor. And I actually track this all the way back to the basically the formation of the colonies because, you know, the colonies were formed, it turned out, through basically sheer coincidence, in a time of rapidly increasing health of the, among the people who were forming the colonies. And also, if you look at this country today, we have rapidly increasing lifespans among certain people and rapidly decreasing lifespans among others. And it basically, because of how we engineer our healthcare system, meaning that healthcare for a, an awful lot of Americans is seen as a reward for having a decent job, that this now becomes this grand stake of getting a job so you can get healthcare. So I wanted to track labor in this episode here. That's exactly what I'm doing. And I hope in this series to show that, you know, I want to ground American culture historically. Because I actually think that the COVID-19 situation, if you will, is essentially a thing that has been brewing not for the past 40 years, with the rise of the neoliberals. But beyond that, because let's be honest about something right now. Neoliberalism would not have been fashionable to the average American voter if it weren't for the plentiful job market among certain people. Now, what do I mean by neoliberalism? Neoliberalism is simply this idea that was very, very popular in America, and still is with a lot of people, where, you know, we don't really need a social safety net. We can have private industry do the social safety net for us. And, you know, it's fair to say, it's, it's very, very fair to say that an awful lot of voters, a whole lot of voters, found that very appealing for a very long time. 
And I don't think you can talk about COVID-19 without understanding that. So I thought I would delve into the history of labor in this country. And this is a little bit of a an ambitious tackle for this podcast channel, I understand. And you did sign up for a Spanish flu pandemic, and I, I, I appreciate that. And we're going to get back to that. But I also wanted to do a deep dive into the background issues of COVID-19 and how exactly it was that this great and powerful empire got to this problem of now you have this situation where 40 years of very little spending on the national level of public health. How did that happen? And I thought I would delve into this. This is part of a series, an ongoing series, within the History of Voyager that I'm choosing to call Fuel Rods. Why am I calling it Fuel Rods? Because you stick fuel rods into water to, to create electricity. And I think we're creating a lot of electricity and a lot of heat. And I think COVID-19 is simply an outgrowth of that. And I wanted to choose to talk about it. So anyway, let me get back to now the American Industrial Revolution in Lowell, Massachusetts. One of the things that Lowell, Massachusetts did, in fact, it's the hallmark of, of this type of situation, these industrial type situations, is it put people ostensibly of different classes in other words, they would have been of different classes before then into the same situation. So effectively, the Industrial Revolution created a new class of workers, of basically what you might want to call landless workers. Now, you had the children of farmers, and some of these farmers were quite prosperous, coming together with the children of non-farmers. And these people, you know, would co-mingle in, in new ways. And for the first time, really, maybe ever, without what you might want to think of in 2020 as adult supervision. So, you know, you had basically this create, this new kind of a creation of a class, essentially around this landless work or this, this labor. And Mr. Lowell and other industrialists essentially had to pay these people because they had to live without their parents. And at least initially, they lived in um, dormitories that he had built. And he then took money. So then I'm sure you might have heard of the stories of the company towns where you end up in debt to the company town, right? Um, well, this is how that, that got started. But it, it's fair to say that it really didn't start out that way at first. The main reason being was basically, it essentially started out as a way for farmers to send off children that the farm didn't exactly need. Because, you know, some farms 
had extra, basically, hands that they really couldn't feed or that they might have thought, well, maybe we can send our daughters. And it was always daughters at first. And that's interesting to me. Uh, I don't know quite what that says, but that's very interesting. But so they thought, well, we can send off our daughters to these towns and, you know, they can have a little money. Or maybe, and this is what happened more often, was that the daughters wanted to go. The way some people want to go to college or that they want to go essentially to spread their wings and to, you know, not live under mom and dad's roof. Anyway, so the plan was that for these girls, at least initially, was that they would marry somebody. They would move away from this town and and marry somebody else after they went there for a time. And for the first little while, that's what happened. But then as the way towns developed, it became basically a, a town with families and such. And what's striking to anybody that would notice is that essentially this happened really rapidly and there was also sort of this you know the first wave that they weren't they didn't desire to live there they they weren't desirous to live there so they wanted to move back to the to the countryside if you will but the second wave was usually immigrants was usually the women uh, immigrant women that the Lowell family or the Lowell people found they could pay less money than even the white the so-called white or Anglo uh, young girls. Now, here's what's interesting, is the whole modality changed once the Lowell people realized that, you know, the, the men folk, the immigrant men folk, were not opposed to working along, to working there at all for money. And you can really get into some very, very interesting analysis here and some some really interesting philosophical thinking it's almost as though the people the new people had this new modality this new desired modality that they wanted like before money was just this sort of a intermediate step towards going back to the land but this is what made money this other group of people was what made money become an end to itself. And that's a fascinating thing to think. I'll give you an example of what I mean. One of the most intriguing things about the 19th century was what the 19th century thought of work. Thought of what we, not just work, because, you know, what is work, you know, what is work and who pays for it? You know, if if you're cooking supper for your family, that's that's work. If you're whatever, but I'm talking about paid work or work you're not doing for your family as such. One of the most intriguing things about the 19th century is what they thought of work was they called it wage slavery. And they called it that almost until the dawn of the 20th century, maybe a little bit after. 
But here's what's fascinating, and this is always something that I found remarkably fascinating about the 19th century attitude towards labor and work. One of the most, before the Civil War, one of the most prestigious jobs that anybody could have that paid money that was separated from the family, so what you and I today would call having a job, say, was that of a shipwright. And in America, the vast majority of, of shipwrights in this country were enslaved African Americans who were paid. That, to me, is an astounding fact. An absolutely astounding fact. That in the 20th century, we normalized working apart from our families to an astonishing degree, with an astonishing speed, to the point now where we can't even imagine doing anything else. And I think that's astonishing. Throughout the 19th century and before, work done for money apart from a farm was something that nobody really wanted to get into because essentially you never wanted to leave the farm because that would leave, that would deprive you of your food source. And your, your thinking there was, I don't want to be dependent on another man for my food. I, I want to do it myself. And, you know, and what's fascinating to me is how long that opinion, in a, in a sense, held sway. I've talked before about my father's family. Uh, my, my father's father was a farmer. Well, he wasn't always a farmer. He was an electrician at his job with the, with the Southern Railroad. And I can remember watching baseball with my, I call him granddaddy. And he would say his kids would, would gather around in the living room. His three sons would gather around in the living room. And, you know, they'd talk, and they'd talk to him, and they'd leave. And then Granddaddy and I'd watch baseball. And then as soon as they were gone, he would mumble under his breath in a way I don't think he thought I was hearing him, but maybe he did. Maybe he was trying to, to teach me something about life. He said, I don't know why another man would get in a situation where he depended on a man for his food. And I thought about that. I don't know why a man would depend on another man for his food. That's what this man, my granddaddy, thought of what his children were doing, was going to the city to get a job. And that's, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a principle in history where just because you know, we think the uh, the dominant theory of the dominant modality has come has come about doesn't necessarily mean that that's what everybody thinks. It's easy and rather fashionable to think of the industrial revolution as a as a story about men, and actually, it is for a large degree. I mean. The, the historical record about women working is 
and frankly, in black, you know, African Americans and minorities working until pretty recent is is rather thin. But it is important to know that, you know, women were always working on when the common modality was agriculture. They were always working and they were always doing sort of the the weaving or the, the cloth making and the shoe making. And what Lowell was doing was basically an industrializing outgrowth of that in a, in a very real sense. Literally a case of why reinvent the wheel, so to say. But the thing you need to understand is that once that was taking shape at the end of the 18th century, within a couple of generations, you know, the, the men had gone from the periphery to the, you know, to the main actors in this story. The industrialization could become, and indeed would become, more and more dangerous with the steel mills and the meatpacking plants. And so as it became more dangerous, fewer and fewer women wanted to be involved and fewer and fewer women could be involved, you know, both in terms of a legal sense as well also as a familial or cultural sense. So, you know, this is why men traditionally did not outlive women by a, a huge margin because a lot of men died in their 40s until around, I would say, the beginning 1900, 1910, somewhere in there. And when you study, you know, it's fair to say, when you, when you study lifespans and life expectancy, what you see is a, is a, not just a singular uptick, but a great uptick as a cohort. You see cohorts or generational groupings uh, move up. You know, it's as though an entire generation essentially learns, you know, don't drink too much alcohol or don't smoke too much tobacco or don't smoke tobacco at all. It doesn't matter what dad did, don't smoke tobacco. It's as though, and you can literally see it, it's as though an entire generation learns this all at once. So, you know, right away, you know, you, your life expectancy for men was essentially into their middle 40s. And life expectancy for women, you know, as long as they survived childbirth, was, you know, significantly older than that relative to the day because, you know, they weren't around massive industrial accidents and things like that. But also men could be involved in other things in these industrial towns. They could be involved in drinking and carousing. And that you can see as a, you can see that as a limiting factor and something tamping down life expectancy in, in uh, male cohorts at the time. Why am I bringing this up in a podcast about COVID-19? Because, and this is important, this is very important, 
COVID-19 is occurring during a time when people expect to live into old age. Because the other thing that went on was something out of Star Trek. The other thing that went on was literally an amazing feat of human technology. Vaccines. So many diseases, so many childhood diseases were killed because of vaccines. And it essentially ended up leaving this sort of a, in a way, in a sense, with certain people, it ended up being its own worst enemy because what happened is society became so stable and so normalized to a great degree that you had the luxury of having people, educated people, believing things that were fundamentally untrue or fundamentally not correct about how vaccines worked, etc. And that, frankly, is, is the hallmark of stability, is that you allow your educated classes to believe things that are fundamentally inaccurate. I want to make that clear. If I haven't made that clear already. So. So what happens? So you have vaccines come about. And, you know, people expect the vaccine. They expect science to work. They expect it. All right. And this is a revolution. And by this time, you know, we're, we're squarely in the 20th century. And that, for right now, is where I'm going to leave this podcast. And I'm going to be coming back to fuel rods, what I'm, what I'm calling fuel rods. But I think for the next podcast, I think we're going to delve into the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 all right take care by the way the music you're about to hear again is from my good friend andrew vickery i've known him for years i'll leave a link below in the description um and you can follow me at, at ben's charlie on twitter and uh, all right also don't forget to visit my website um i'm gonna i'm in the process of of rearranging it and reengineering it but the website is still up and still available to be looked at and i just want to say that this podcast the the has been much more successful than i ever could have imagined thank you so much and have a wonderful day. I'll talk to you next time. And I'll continue on with my history of work and my history of the Spanish flu as well as my talk on COVID-19. And again, I want you to understand the, the history of work is essentially a history of how we got to neoliberalism, which I honestly believe is connected inexorably to our COVID-19 problem. And why we have 
a bigger COVID-19 problem than some other uh, what we call peer nations, which I think increasingly that's a very interesting way to look at it is so-called peer nations. Alrighty, until next time, I'll be seeing you around. And remember that the music you're about to hear is courtesy of one Mr. Andrew Vickery, a friend of mine I've had for quite a while. So, fare thee well. This has been Ben Kitchings of the History Voyager. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.